Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Now, if he was deluded or a deceiver, the penalty under, well, Israeli law, it would have been stoning. But they didn't want to stone Jesus because, well, you can't really see the body under a pile of rocks. They wanted him nailed to a cross. They wanted him humiliated publicly. They wanted everyone to see that this is what happens when you mess with Rome, and this is what happens when you mess with us. Matthew chapter 27, what an extraordinary piece of scripture. Jesus, the creator of mankind, perfect and innocent, on trial in the courts of man, facing judgment for crimes he did not commit, all so that those who committed the crimes could be free of judgment. Here we are in the first 31 verses of Matthew 27 for a message by Pastor Sam entitled, Condemned. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, we're looking at the first 31 verses, the title of our message, Condemned. For those of you with us for the first time, or any of you who may not have been with us last time, we are in between Jesus' three religious trials and his three civil trials. Jesus, after his arrest, and many are unaware, actually went through six separate trials. The first was there in the house of Annas. He was the legitimate high priest of Israel, but Rome didn't really like working with someone who had real authority and real power, so they had taken him from his position and they put his son-in-law Caiaphas in his position. So after the trial before Annas, they went and tried Jesus before Caiaphas. After Caiaphas, the 71 members, or at least a majority of them, gathered together those of the Sanhedrin. That would be Israel's Supreme Court. And they had decided ahead of time, of course, that this Jesus had to be dealt with, that he needed to die. And so they were looking for charges against him. Ultimately, the charge that stuck was blasphemy. Why? Well, he had said that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. He claimed to be one with the Father. And, well, either he was completely deluded or he was an absolute deceiver or he told the truth. Now, if he was deluded or a deceiver, the penalty under, well, Israeli law, it would have been stoning. But they didn't want to stone Jesus because, well, you can't really see the body under a pile of rocks. They wanted him nailed to a cross. They wanted him humiliated publicly. They wanted everyone to see that this is what happens when you mess with Rome and this is what happens when you mess with us. So in any case, he goes before first Annas, then Caiaphas, then he goes before the Sanhedrin and, and the charge blasphemy, claiming to be the son of God and God the son. Now they knew that when you come to a civil trial and only the Romans could crucify, they weren't going to be interested in a charge like blasphemy. Basically, Pilate would have laughed him out of the building. Who cares if he claims to be a god? The Romans, like the Greeks, believed in many gods. Some were atheistic, it's true, but most were polytheistic. They believed, as many do today, that there's gods everywhere. Some pantheistic gods in nature, other polytheistic, there's just millions of gods. But, well, the Jews were monotheistic. They believed in the one true and living God. And here's Jesus claiming to be the Son, the only begotten Son of God. So the three Roman trials, they begin with Pilate. And we're told in the morning, the chief priests and elders and all the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. That's the end of his religious trials. And they had bound him. They led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. This is the beginning of his three civil trials. Now, 
Before we look at the actual charges that they bring before Pilate, we get a little bit of a diversion. We move over to the person of Judas, and, and we read Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. We might say, deal with it. It's your problem. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. Before we read what takes place after, let me point out to you that Judas, while he was filled with sorrow and remorse, he never really repented. Can we be sure of that? Yeah, let me read you something out of 2 Corinthians. Now, it's not written directly related to him or to relate to him, but it does definitely apply in the situation. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, we read, Godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas was sorry, and he came back and he confessed, I've betrayed innocent blood. The first time, well, and we'll see three of these in our short study today, where Jesus is proclaimed, pronounced innocent. He says, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood. It almost sounds like he's repenting, like he's changed his mind, like he's turned around. But it's an incomplete repentance. Why? We know Jesus says that he was the son of perdition and he went to his own place. All of us have a place prepared for us, by the way. In fact, if you end up in heaven, you'll find that it was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. But if you end up in hell, you'll find that it was never really prepared for you. It was created for Satan and his fallen angels. And you really have to walk over Jesus to get there. You have to ignore the reality that God loves you, sent his son to die for you, and that that's exactly what Jesus came and did. But godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation. I think everybody's sorry when they get caught or they're sorry when things don't work out the way they'd hoped. But godly sorrow turns a life around. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's exactly what we see in Judas. His sorrow produced death. His own death. So he comes back, having brought the 30 pieces of silver, returned the 30 pieces of silver, he says, I've sinned, betraying innocent blood. Their response, deal with it, your problem. So he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. Now, if you are a student of scripture, inevitably you will be confronted with people that will say things like, well, the Bible's just written by men. Maybe you've talked to people recently and they're like, it's just written by men. I suggest you mention to them that the scripture itself says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's literally God-breathed. God, yes, worked through men, but it was God who was giving the revelation. We have lots of proofs of those, but it's not the purpose of our study today. I simply bring it to your attention because people who say such things often will follow it up with something like, well, the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. I don't know if you've had people share that with you. They've shared it with me. And if they say it to you, well, here's what I suggest though a lot of you wouldn't want to be put on the spot, I encourage you to do it. Just take your Bible and say, well, show me one. And here's what I've noticed. The great majority of people who say such things, the Bible's just written by men, or the Bible's full of errors or contradictions, 
They've never even read the Bible. They can't point out one apparent contradiction or one error. Now, I'm not saying there aren't any people out there. There are. There are some serious cynics and skeptics who spend a lot of time in the Scriptures trying to prove that the God who inspired them doesn't exist and that we're deluded and deceived. And But here's the deal. Here's the deal. When somebody says, listen, filled with contradictions, filled with errors, ask them to show you one. There's an apparent contradiction here, actually a couple, and that's why I bring it to your attention. You may be sharing the Lord and people, oh, I saw that movie, or I've read that book, and, and, and hey, in fact, it says in Matthew that, well, Judas hung himself. In, in Acts, it says in Acts 1.18 that he fell and, and he, well, let me read it to you. It's kind of a, an interesting verse, an apparent contradiction. It says, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, falling head long, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Well, is it a contradiction? I don't think so. Here's why. We know that Judas went out and hung himself. And by the way, that was fitting. Deuteronomy 19 and the verses 15 through 21 tell us that if somebody testified falsely against another, that they should share the fate of the one they testified against. We know our Lord was hung on a tree. Don't get hung up on the whole idea of a cross. It was a cross. But they used trees and they hung cross beams on them. They weren't setting the whole thing up. And, and basically, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took the curse on you, the curse on me, our sin, upon himself. But here's the thing. Judas goes out and hangs himself. Our Lord would be hung upon a cross, not like this, but you know, like this. But it's fitting that Judas went that way. And we're told that, well, it's easy to figure out. He hangs himself, the branch breaks, he falls, and, and his guts burst out, as, of course, Acts tells us they did. Some years ago, I had an interesting experience. A brother I dearly loved, an older, much older gentleman. If I call someone older, they got to be older than me, and he was. But anyway, he, he was doing some street witnessing down in the park, and he was kind of fire and brimstone, really too much for me, but I loved him. I loved his passion. I loved his heart. He was a godly older guy, and he said, Sam, would you tell your people or ask them to come down and, and share as I share? You know, I share with the crowd, and I'm like, yeah, we can come down. We'll patch up some ears and stuff, you know, and he had a good sense of humor. I could share with him like that, and so anyway, I tell everybody in the congregation, there's this guy, and he's got this Acts 118 ministry. Now, I meant to say Acts 1-8, but somehow I got them confused. And, and of course, Acts 1-8, you'll be filled with power and witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1-18? Doesn't really sound like the ministry you'd want, but I'll tell you, a lot of people went to check it out. Because what is it? This man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. Well, well... We're still friends. Actually, he's gone to be with the Lord since, but we both got a kick out of the whole thing. But here's another apparent contradiction. This one says that Judas purchased a field. And if you go back to Matthew, it, well, it actually says that the Lord, in the early part, you'll see it in chapter 27, the Lord purchased the field, and later the chief priest purchased the field. Now, which is it? Well, they're all true, you see. Judas purchased it because it was his blood money that he brought back and threw on the floor of the temple that actually was used to buy the potter's field. It was the chief priest who did it because they went out with the money to do it. But the Lord takes responsibility, well, because way back in Zechariah chapter 11, and let me read it to you, he had prophesied that all this was going to go down, that all this was going to happen. And it's in Zechariah 11, I believe, 12 and 13. He says, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out from my wages 30 pieces of silver. 
And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now I want you to see how perfectly this prophecy is fulfilled. Judas returns. He takes the 30 pieces of silver. He throws it on the floor of the temple. They take it up and they use the money to buy a potter's field. There's yet one more sort of strange and possible you know, confusion that people deal with in this passage. But, well, maybe we should deal with a couple other things on our way there. He sinned by betraying innocent blood. By the way, that was the truth. Then he goes out and he hangs himself. The chief priest, well, they say, we can't take this money and put it in the treasury. It's the price of blood. Here's the irony. They didn't want to do anything that would have been ceremonially defiling. In fact, when they take Jesus to the praetorium, when they, they take him to Pilate, they don't want to go in lest they be ceremonially defiled. What that means is they couldn't worship and uh, be a part of the Passover that was taking place. So they, they don't want to do anything outwardly that would defile them. But get this, they've had no problem with three illegal trials, with trying Jesus as, at night, which was illegal, trying him and, and pronouncing sentence without giving him the 24-hour waiting period, which was demanded in their law, doing it over Passover, which was also illegal. They're breaking all sorts of laws. They've condemned an innocent man and they know it. And they're going to bring false charges against him in a moment before Pilate. In the midst of all of that, they're worried about, well, little technicalities. We can't put this money back in the treasury, probably where it came from in the first place. So they took counsel and bought with it a potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. A potter's field. It's an interesting picture. Of course, the Old Testament provides us with the imagery. Our, our, our Lord, our God is called the potter and of course we are called, well, his creation. He's the potter and well, he's fashioning and forming and making us. But what was a potter's field? That was the place where a potter would take all of the broken and useless and worthless materials, the, the leftovers, the discards, those things that didn't work out, and well, he'd throw them out into the field. And that field would then become worthless. You couldn't graze your animals in it. You couldn't really plant in it. So it was a worthless field filled with worthless pottery. Interesting picture, because our Lord, of course, tells us in Matthew 13 that the field is the world. And if he's the potter and we're the clay, and the world sees it this way, let's face it, the world looks on, even at one another, and says, worthless, useless, never going to come out to anything, never going to accomplish anything. And the Lord looks at those broken, shattered, devastated lives and says, I can make something beautiful of that. Why? He's the potter. And he knows how to heat up the furnace of affliction, how to soften that clay with the water of his word and to do something awesome and wonderful in the lives of those people his hands are upon. Well, then was fulfilled, and yet here's one more apparent contradiction. That which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. What's the apparent contradiction? Well, it's from Zechariah, you see, and not Jeremiah. And some have tried to put it together and, and try to figure out, well, there's something there in Jeremiah that could be similar and others have suggested no Matthew just got mixed up I don't think that happened at all Matthew wasn't mixed up he is very detail oriented I mean the guy used to be a tax collector 
We have an accountant here. You bring her a receipt to the penny or you don't get your reimbursement. And that's the kind of guy Matthew was, you see. And so he was going to get it right. Well, why would he say Jeremiah if he knew it was Zechariah? The answer is actually a simple one. When we think of the law, if I were to say to you, the law of God, well, what image comes to mind? For, for many of us, it's the Ten Commandments. The law of God is the Ten Commandments. But for the Jew, it was much more. It was the book of Leviticus. Some of you are saying, Levita, what? Never heard of it, never read it? Well, I hope you do. In fact, we are going to study it sometime soon on Wednesday nights. But it's the third book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It was the book of the law. Well, not only Leviticus, but Deuteronomy, two books later, fifth book of Moses, it was also a second giving of the law. So to the Jewish mind, and remember that's who these guys were, they're pre-Christian here, Jesus is yet to die for them, so they've not yet become Christians, or, well, in any case, the law, Ten Commandments, or the Ten Commandments in the book of Leviticus, or the Ten Commandments, the book of Le Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy, or the Torah, the first five books of Moses. All of that was called the law. The, the Psalms, when they wanted to talk about the poetic literature of Scripture, they often incorporated all of them within the Psalms. So they'd say the law and the Psalms, well, that included the Psalms, the, the Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes and well, those Song of Solomon, the other books that were poetry, you see. And, and then there were the prophets. And often they would kind of lump the prophets under Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, one of the, the larger books of the Old Testament. So if they said the law, it could be the Torah. If they said the Psalms, it could be all of the poetry. And if they said Jeremiah, they were talking about the prophecies. So Zechariah, in that case, is a part of Jeremiah. It's sort of overseeing or, or being the bigger picture in all of that. Well, in any case, apparent contradictions are just that. They're apparent. But there's always an answer. And don't be afraid to ask people the question. Show me the, the contradiction because if you can't deal with it, you can say, you know what, I really can't answer that, but I'll go down or I'll make a call and I'll get you the answer. And come down or call us and we'll provide it. If there is an answer, we'll give it to you. If there is no answer, this is my favorite. Been doing it for decades now and more and more. I just tell people, I don't know. And they're like, what? You don't know? Well, there it is, see? It's not true. Listen, just because we don't know something doesn't mean we don't know plenty. We know why we're here. The world doesn't know that. We know how we got here. The world doesn't know that. We're here because God made us and he made us for himself. And well, in any case, we go on now back to the trial. Jesus' first trial before Pilate in verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. I ask the question that way or phrase it because that you, it's emphatic. You see, Pilate was sort of amazed looking at Jesus. When he thought of a king, he thought of someone with some power, with some authority, with some splendor, with, well, an entourage. And here's Jesus and he doesn't really look like much and he's not really saying anything. And, and they're saying he says he's a king. In fact, the civil charges made against Jesus, first that he was perverting the nation. We don't even have to deal with that. It's such an absurdity. The second is he forbid them to pay taxes to Caesar. We know that's far from what happened. In fact, when he was asked, must we pay our taxes? He said, show me the coin, show me the money. And they did. And he said, whose inscription is it? Caesar's. Well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Jesus never said, don't pay Caesar his taxes. He said, you must pay your taxes. Romans build on that, builds on that, saying that we're to be good citizens, that we're to be submitted to the government that God has placed over us. We're to support them, even though we may disagree with them. 
In any case, the charges perverting the nation, false. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, false. Proclaiming himself Christ and King. Hmm. The truth is, Jesus is the Christ. He is not just the King of the Jews, but the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so this charge, it's actually true. But Jesus, of course, as Pilate says, are you the King of the Jews? Jesus, if you look at the other gospel accounts, he says, look, my kingdom, it's not of this world. What's he saying? You don't have to be threatened. I'm no threat to Caesar. It's not what I'm here about. It's, it's not what I'm doing. My kingdom isn't of this world. And those people that get all hung up in trying to establish the kingdom for our Lord. And there are many caught up in the delusion that somehow we got to usher in the kingdom so the Lord can return. No, the Lord returns and he establishes his kingdom. Until then, if you want to do something to help the kingdom be established, if, if you'd like to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, submit your life fully to him. And there will be his kingdom in your life, his kingdom in your home, his kingdom in our community. But that's how it happens, you see. One person at a time as we submit our lives to the King of Kings. Well, he asks, are you the King of the Jews? And he acknowledges, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And Pilate says, don't you hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him, not one word, that the governor marveled greatly. Now, Pilate gets wind during this first trial that Jesus isn't from Judea, but from Galilee. That was the region of Herod. Herod, not the same one who destroyed the children at Jesus' birth, but the one who put John the Baptist to death. And there are a whole line of these Herods, each one worse than their father and grandfather. They are just succeedingly decadent and, and horrible. But in any case, Pilate's trying to get out of it all, all of it, and he, and he says, here's my way out. I'll send him to Herod. He's from Herod's jurisdiction. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Now, Herod gets all excited. Herod's thinking, this is the guy that I've heard about, the miracle worker. And, and he's thinking, I'll get Jesus to put on a little show for me. And Herod, interesting in Scripture, he is the only one, at least recorded for us, to whom Jesus had absolutely nothing to say. It's amazing. Even his bitter enemies, he'd say, woe to you or repent. But to Herod, he said absolutely nothing. So Herod ends up mocking him, his soldiers abusing him. And then he sends him back to Pilate. And when he comes back to Pilate, well, Pilate is now in a tough place. He's already realized that, well, we'll read it, but that Jesus had done nothing to deserve death. Maybe he was a problem to the Jews, but he was no threat to Rome. And so as he comes back, he tries yet another tact. At the feast, we read in verse 15, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. He was involved in an insurrection. He was a murderer. He had a cross fashioned and formed for him and he belonged on it. So he gathers... Jesus and Barabbas and brings them out before the mob, the crowd. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew because of envy they had delivered him. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife had sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Claudia she was a daughter of Augustus, married to Pilate, living there, 
with Pilate. She had converted to Judaism at some point and, and ultimately becomes a Christian. That's what history tells us. But at this point, she has a dream. She comes in and as Judas had earlier saying he's innocent, she says he's just. Have nothing to do with that just man. She's saying find a way out of this mess. Well, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. I remember thinking, as a new Christian, that the whole scene we just looked at was a tragedy. I remember thinking of Jesus being a victim and frankly feeling a little animosity towards our Jewish brethren for doing this. But Jesus, being a victim, does not portray an accurate picture of our Lord. John 10.18 quotes our Lord saying, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus put up with this trial, its judgment, and his execution, while all the while he could have easily just walked away and left it all behind. It is as the hymn we sing says, it was love that held him on that tree. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.